this is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the political primaries and caucuses are heating up around the country, and it's been challenging to sift through all of the political noise and rhetoric to get the meat of the issues that are truly important to the well-being of the American people. But the most recent Democratic debate took place in a community dealing with a major public health crisis Flint, Michigan. Residents there were exposed to dangerously high levels of lead and other contaminants through their public drinking water. And some of the most pressing issues facing the nation do seem to have been pushed aside in this election. At the Democratic debate in Flint, we were able to focus on something that is vitally important, public health. And the Flint water crisis, that is a public health perfect storm. Democratic candidates Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were able to focus in on this emerging story. And it was a chance to hear what they would do in the event of such a crisis happening on their watch. And, you know, Mark, I don't know if I've ever seen such a powerful backdrop during one of these debates. The audience was filled with Flint residents who've been directly impacted by the crisis. Their children have been exposed to high levels of lead, which poses a serious risk to their long-term health. And other major contaminants have caused additional health problems throughout the community, as well as disrupting daily life in the search of pure water. Government officials were denying the existence of a problem, and it wasn't until our guests today came along that there was a shift in the situation. Dr. Mark Edwards is the person who shined a spotlight on the crisis and is now working to fix the problem. He's a MacArthur Fellow, civil engineer, and professor of environmental and water resources at Virginia Tech. His specialty is the decaying of the nation's crumbling water delivery infrastructure and the threat that it poses to human health. It's a vitally important topic, and we're looking forward forward to our chat with him. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Mark Edwards in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The political season is generating more fallout and contention. Dr. Ben Carson no longer seeking the Republican nomination for president. The former neurosurgeon says he doesn't see a pathway to success in this contentious election season being dominated by real estate developer Donald Trump. Trump did deliver on his plans for a seven-point health care policy agenda to replace the Affordable Care Act, which he says he will repeal as a first order of business. Trump takes issue with the individual mandate requiring all persons to purchase health insurance. His plan also calls for allowing sales of health insurance plans across state lines, which he says will promote competition. Trump's plan also calls for allowing folks to purchase insurance and then deduct the cost of it. Economists warn that will create a disincentive to purchase insurance at all. The White House and public health officials are planning a summit April 1st on the Zika virus, which isn't expected to impact U.S. shores until late spring into summer. But researchers in Brazil, the epicenter of the Latin American outbreak, say there may be more to worry about. They're saying the virus linked to birth defects in babies as well as neurological disorders in adults may be carried by more than one kind of mosquito than previously thought. Scientists announcing they were able to infect other species, especially one that's 20 times more common in Brazil. They said much more research is needed to learn whether the Culex mosquitoes can transmit Zika as well. 
CTE, researchers have found, in almost every single former NFL player who died, had a brain that showed signs of the neurological disorder brought on by multiple blows to the head. But little attention has been paid to women's sports. Retired U.S. women's soccer player Brandy Chastain wants to change that. 47-year-old retired athlete planning to donate her brain to CTE research. While football gets all the attention, increasingly young women playing competitive sports in high school, college, and beyond are also suffering traumatic brain injuries, which increasingly have been linked to cognitive decline and brain disease. Chastain is the second national team member to decide to donate her brain after Cindy Parlow Combe. Both women and several others from the 1999 team have argued against heading in youth soccer. On the flip side, another brain study just released shows that learning a new sport in midlife is actually good for your brain. Past neurological studies and people have shown learning a new physical skill in adulthood, like juggling, leads to increases in the volume of gray matter in parts of the brain related to movement control. So, want to increase your gray matter? Take up snowboarding, rock climbing, even hacky sack, they say, has been shown to have a positive effect. I'm Arietta O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Mark Edwards, who is overseeing the mitigation of the Flint, Michigan water crisis. Dr. Edwards is a civil engineer and Charles P. Lunsford, professor of environmental and water resources engineering at Virginia Polytech Institute, where his focus is on ensuring the protection of safe drinking water. He's earned numerous awards and distinctions, including the 2008 MacArthur Foundation Fellowship for his activism. He earned his BS from SUNY Buffalo and his MS and uh, PhD from the University City of Washington in Seattle. Dr. Edwards, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to have you join us at a time when uh, you're so focused in on uh, mitigating a major public health crisis unfolding in Flint, Michigan. Tens of thousands of Flint residents have been exposed to high levels of lead and other toxic contaminants through their public water infrastructure after the government entities switched the water sources and then consistently denied there was a problem, and you can't make this stuff up. Uh, (laughs) But you've been uh, also exposed uh, several years ago, a similar matter that impacted the population of Washington, D.C., and you've said that it was only a matter of time for another such crisis to emerge. Could you help our listeners understand the scope and the context of the current crisis in Flint? In 2001 to 2004, there was actually a massive lead and water contamination event in Washington, D.C. that was probably 20 to 30 times worse than what currently happened in Flint. But that problem was completely covered up by a fraudulent U.S. Centers for Disease Control report that claimed no one got hurt from this unprecedented exposure. And it wasn't until 2010 that that was exposed by a congressional investigation in our research That said, even though the Flint water disaster is only one-thirtieth as bad as Washington, D.C., the Centers for Disease Control has actually lowered the threshold that's considered a concern or lead poisoning in children. And as a result, even though the lead levels in Flint water were not as bad as Washington, D.C., certainly they were horribly bad, it did elevate the blood lead of many children over the current five microgram per deciliter threshold. And in some neighborhoods that had higher water lead and lower incomes, the incidence of elevated blood lead rose above 10% in August of last year. So literally one out of every 10 children had their blood lead elevated in some neighborhoods. So there's no safe level of lead exposure. 
exposure. And of course, in addition to the lead, they destroyed the pipe infrastructure, probably hundreds of millions of dollars of damage. And then we had the Legionella deaths, which are also related to the failure to control corrosion control laws. And yeah, all of this originated from a failure to follow federal law by civil servants, both at MDQ and then a political appointee at, at EPA who knew about it and let it, let it happen. Well, Dr. Edwards, I can't think of a more fitting uh, title for a course than the one that you teach in Engineering, Ethics, and Heroism at Virginia Tech. And uh, this Flint, Michigan story certainly has elements of each of the three. It seems you were surrounded by many heroes throughout the unfolding crisis. The mom who first reached out to you and who became your leading citizen scientist in this crisis There was the uh, physician who spoke up publicly after seeing a spike in kids with elevated lead levels and the local EPA official who really risked his career to warn of a crisis unfolding. So many people trying to uh, confront the problem, bring it to attention, but seem to be thwarted by authorities or even publicly excoriated. Maybe you could share uh, with us the timeline of the Flint water crisis. And what was it that made you and your team of scientists and students decide to go all in for Flint, as you've said? The switch to the new Flint river water source occurred in April of 2014. And in retrospect, problems started right immediately. People were noticing all problems related to corrosion control, which Flint forgot to install. So people were complaining about red-colored water, which is iron rust. They were seeing pipes breaking because they were being eaten up by the water. Uh, the General Motors plan in October of 2014 found that the water was eating their car parts up, so they had to switch the water sources. And in the meantime, the people who forgot to follow the law were misleading everyone. And then in early 2015, people started noticing lead in the water. And in fact, one mom in Flint had twins, and she noticed one of them wasn't growing as fast as the other. And they tested for lead in water and lead in blood and found that both were high. At that point, we got involved because Mr. Del Toro, an EPA employee, had been working with uh, this hero mom, Leanne Walters. And so we sampled their house and, wow, uh, found literally hazardous waste levels of lead coming out of this, you know, this family's tap. And Mr. Del Toro, as you said, he put his career on the line to raise alarms about this, um, that EPA should consider taking over the system to protect people. And uh, unfortunately, he his memo that he wrote was covered up by his boss. She allowed this brave employee to be publicly discredited. And as a result of that cover-up, people in Flint were told that the water was safe to drink when it wasn't. The thing that really angered us and made us go all in for Flint was the residents actually had a meeting with these state bad actors who forgot to follow the law and were covering this up. And civil servants laughed in the face of Miss Walters, which I don't see anything funny about a child being lead poisoned. Uh, they bragged about how this EPA employee would had been handled and he would not be heard from again. So turns out they made a deal with EPA that EPA would not intervene to help Flint residents. Yeah, besides getting mad, uh, we decided to form this team of 25 people, uh, myself, two other professors, about seven research scientists and many undergrads and grads. And 
we provided funding and the expertise and the analytical support and allowed Flint residents to sample their water to see if it was safe or not. And they very quickly discovered it was not safe. You know, I really, you know, your your whole set of actions reveal the failure of the system, which is uh, there to protect the public health. You know, you've you ran into this same problem in Washington, D.C., and if it wasn't for your own moral integrity and use of your own money and scientific resources and free time to validate the health concerns there, I'm not sure any of this would have been uncovered. And I'm wondering what the message is to folks who want to join your brigade of citizen scientists, how they might help in other parts of the country where they're worried about their own water safety. It took a a leading scientist like yourself and enormous amount of energy and focus to get people to finally do what they were hired to do, which is to protect the well-being of our drinking water. So uh, what's the larger message out there for the, uh, the public? Well, the larger message is very scary, and that's why it's striking such a chord in everyone who hears it, and that is the government that we pay to protect us is in some cases our enemy. Uh, they are not looking out for us. Uh, they are working overtime to frankly hurt us if that means that they can protect their reputation and stay out of the spotlight. So if it ever comes down to a decision between the reputation of a government agency and the truth, I guarantee you with the present culture at these agencies, the truth will lose every time. And we're seeing this play out in many agencies. You might know we've had problems with the Veterans Administration, Mm -hmm. uh, the IRS, the CDC, and now the EPA. I'm not putting down the employees at, at these organizations because I know the vast majority of them are great people. They want to do their job. But what we've created is these corrupt cultures where they're not making the decisions. They literally care more about their, their reputation of, of their agency than they do about the health of children. You know, so that's what's making this, you know, everyone so angry about this mm-hmm. is we are, we are, we're getting the worst of both worlds. Uh, you know, the bottom line is we're getting big and bad government at the same time. And everyone should be upset about this, and we really need bipartisan efforts to force a culture change at these agencies and remind them that they work for the public and not for themselves. Well, Dr. Edwards, I uh, I started my career as a public health nurse uh, four decades ago, and we were relentless in the pursuit of lead poisoning and elevated lead, and most of it then was housing stock, right? That was sort of where the where the focus seemed to be. But what was front and center always was you had to prevent it because the damage could be irreparable. You've called Flint a perfect storm of health complications. And maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about what is is it that has everyone so upset and worried about the lifelong consequences of uh, having lead poisoning in childhood? What should people know about the long-term effects of lead poisoning in childhood? Lead adversely affects every system in the human body, and as a result, it's official U.S. government policy that there's no safe level of lead exposure, that we have to do everything in our power to engage in primary prevention, which is to make sure uh, laws are followed and children are not exposed, because the harm that's been done cannot be undone. Even more concerning is the way we monitor for lead in children is not how you would monitor to detect lead in water exposures. Specifically, 
the Centers for Disease Control simply assumes that the water across the country is safe. And so what they have in place mm-hmm. is a lead paint and lead dust monitoring program. Right. And the fact that the incidence of blood lead in this children that are not the highest risk group was doubled raises, you know, concerns about what happened in the risk groups that we're not even measuring. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, you know, the youngest infants using formula, mm-hmm. they're never tested for blood lead. And those are the right. uh, off the charts health risk. But, of course, any exposure to a mom is, is transferred to the developing fetus. So for all of these reasons, you know, the doubling of the incidence of blood lead is of concern enough. But when you realize the fact that the monitoring program that detected it is not designed to, to find lead in water risk because we have a lead in water law, you know, it really raises concerns about how deep the damage goes. And, and that's, you know, another reason people are just so upset about this. Mm-hmm. We're speaking today with Dr. Mark Edwards, who's spearheading the effort to address the lead contamination crisis in Flint, Michigan, which is his research uh, helped confirm. He's the MacArthur Foundation Fellow, civil engineer and professor of environmental and water resources engineering at Virginia Tech. You know, sort of back to Flint, the water supply has been switched back to its original source, but the damage has been done. The population now is reliant on filtration systems, bottled water for the foreseeable future, short of replacing all of the lead pipes in the Flint region. What are the other challenges that they face in terms of a threat to human health? One of the problems we're having is simply getting the water tested to see its current status. Because in all likelihood, Flint water is now meeting federal standards. But unfortunately, Flint, like many cities across the United States, has, has never followed the 25-year-old federal lead and copper rule law, which means uh, they never identified the, the high-risk homes with lead pipe that they were supposed to be sampling. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't do their homework 20 years ago, they can't do the testing until they go in and find the right number of homes that have lead pipe. And this is proving to be a lot harder than anyone thought. So we are up there right now. My students are giving up their spring break. They're up in Flint, Michigan, and they're going all around the city with Flint residents, and they're resampling Good for 271 them. homes that, that we sampled with Flint residents in uh, August of 2015 when the Flint water lead crisis was at its height. And the expectation is it's going to be three times lower. In the meantime, everyone's waiting for EPA to figure out a way to do a legitimate sampling event because um, Flint has never done one. And it's not until both of those pieces of the puzzle are in place that anyone's going to even think about telling people that Flint is meeting federal standards. So I think bottled water filters are, are going to be used for the foreseeable future, at least the next couple of months. And Frankly, even then, no one's going to trust the water anyway because uh, they've been betrayed so fundamentally. Hmm. You know, you have the National Guard walking the street, distributing bottled water, putting filters on taps, neighborhoods of children with elevated blood lead. And according to EPA and the State Department of Environmental Quality, Flint never failed the lead and copper roll. You know, so it shows you just what a joke EPA has allowed this to become. Well, Dr. Edwards, certainly another healthcare hero in this story is the family doctor who confronted the establishment. Dr. Mona showed us that she could use just 
good medical research and the medical evidence that was in front of her. Uh, in this case, uh, a new onset of high lead levels and hundreds of her patients to stand up to the powers of be who were telling her she was wrong and say, no, I'm right and something needs to be done. Her actions really seem to have helped turn the tide against those who were denying just what a crisis they had on their hands. wonder what your thoughts are about what other frontline clinicians might learn from her experience when they suspect that the public's health is being compromised. You know, Flint is really a story of both epic villains and epic heroes. And Dr. Mona is certainly one of those that helped us reach that critical mass that was necessary to show what was happening to kids. If we hadn't had this just amazing group of outside people, and you know, those kids would still be drinking that water to this day. You know, I think she kind of exemplifies a new generation of public health professionals mm-hmm. that probably is a harkens back to a, a generation right, ago right I think so uh, where where really folks got into the field because they they were altruistic and if anything was gonna anyone was gonna hurt uh, children they would put it all on the line to protect them and she's got the right mix of scientifics uh, and, and political savvy and is not afraid to take on evil when she sees it. And so, I, you know, the world desperately needs more Dr. Mm-hmm. I mean, There's every hope that this new generation is not going to stand for the status quo and maybe be as willfully blind as perhaps my generation would tend to be. You know, it was interesting to listen at the Democratic presidential debate in which both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders called for the governor of Michigan to resign. And for those public officials responsible for letting the crisis unfold to be held uh, accountable. But you said the public science is broken and that based on your experience, what kind of punishment for negligence among public officials have you seen in this case or in the Washington, D.C. case? And what more needs to be done to ensure that public officials are held accountable? Well, in Washington, D.C., there's no better example because five brave whistleblowers who put their career on the line to try to tell the public that the lead in water was high or that the agencies were corrupt, they were fired. And not one of the perpetrators of this environmental crime at the agencies who who was responsible was held accountable. And even after they were reamed in a congressional hearing, CDC refused to say they did anything wrong. They refused to say they're sorry. And, you know, so... That's why I knew that another D.C., which happened in Flint, was inevitable, because if you cannot learn from your mistakes, you're doomed to repeat them. I think in Flint, you know, we finally have seen what it takes for a federal or state employee to lose their jobs, and this is the standard. Uh, You have to literally poison a city, destroy their infrastructure, cause deaths from Legionnaire's disease, and become an international embarrassment, And at that point, yeah, that does reach the threshold um, to finally get a a government employee fired. But that, you know, that threshold is not good enough to stop the next Flint or the next D.C. from Mm -hmm. happening. We have to change the culture at these agencies so good, heroic people like the whistleblowers in D.C. are allowed to do their jobs. And until we, we get these agencies to value Uh, the public and the lives of young children more than their reputations, we're all at risk. I mean, uh, what happened in Flint, it's a miracle because it got exposed. But I can tell you that miracle is not going to happen every time around the country. And, you know, for that reason, we, we really have to get this fixed. Well, Dr. Edwards, I want to maybe pivot to the issue of getting it fixed. And I guess the question I'd like to ask you is, are there any uh, exemplars or 
examples of communities or cities around the country that have taken a proactive stance. How do communities which are waking up and saying, my God, this could happen here, implement a plan of action to really look at the quality of their water uh, safety and make a plan to move forward? I, I am the biggest fan of the mission of the EPA and the CDC. But, you know, they have to live up to their mission. They have to be worthy of the public trust. And frankly, I don't see an alternative but to have trustworthy government. And yes, we need a check and balance on their power, because uh, right now we have none. No one ever thought that people would behave this way without any profit motive whatsoever. And I think that's what's so shocking. I'm sure that there are communities, you know, all around the country and probably the vast majority where their water is safe. But when you see something like Flint, Mm -hmm. when you see something like Washington, D.C., uh, who's to say it's not you next? So that's why trust, I mean, we have to trust each other. We have to get these agencies fixed. We've been speaking with Dr. Mark Edwards, MacArthur Foundation Fellow, Civil Engineer and Professor of Environmental and Water Resources Engineering at Virginia Tech, who helped uncover the scope of the Flint, Michigan water crisis. You can learn more about his work by going to flintwaterstudy.org. Or you can follow them on Twitter by going to hashtag Flint Water Crisis. Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you for having me. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Donald Trump says the federal government could save $300 billion a year by negotiating prescription drug prices. But Medicare, which isn't allowed to negotiate drug prices now, spent only $77 billion total in federal funds on its prescription drug program in 2015. And in a March Republican debate, he claimed that the government could save hundreds of billions of dollars in waste by having prescription drug companies bid properly. One of the debate moderators, Fox News' Chris Wallace, accurately pointed out that Medicare's entire federal spending per year for Part D, its prescription drug component, was well under that. Trump countered that he was talking about saving throughout the economy, but Trump has indeed claimed several times that he could save the $300 billion per year through negotiating drug prices. According to figures from the Congressional Budget Office, three years of spending on Medicare Part D doesn't even add up to $300 billion. All national spending on retail prescriptions, whether through Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, or out-of-pocket, totaled nearly $300 billion in 2014. That's according to the national health expenditure data compiled by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So Trump would be talking about saving all of the money the country spends on drugs per year. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders has cited a much lower estimate for savings from negotiating Medicare drug prices between $230 billion to $541 billion over 10 years. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Pregnancy is normally an exciting time for most women, but according to the research, an estimated 10% of prenatal women experience some kind of depression during their pregnancy, and many are reluctant to treat their depression with medication for fear of harming the fetus. They're having significant symptoms that are getting in the way of feeling good, and left untreated, those mild to moderate symptoms can progress, in some cases lead to a more serious postpartum depression. Dr. Cynthia Bass is a psychologist at Brown University. She and her colleagues decided to test a cohort of pregnant women to see if a targeted prenatal yoga class might have a positive impact on women dealing with prenatal depression. It was a typical kind of hatha yoga, breathing exercises, meditation. And we enrolled 34 women who were pregnant who had clinical levels of depression And we measured their change in depressive symptoms over that period of time. Not only were women able to manage their depressive incidents, they also bonded with other pregnant women during the program and found additional support from their group. Women who are depressed during pregnancy, unfortunately, do often have less ideal birth outcomes. So one thing we're interested in seeing if when we provide prenatal yoga program, can it improve mood? And then can we even see some positive effects in terms of the birth outcomes. A guided non-medical yoga exercise program designed to assist pregnant women through depression symptoms, helping them successfully navigate those symptoms without medication. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.